0: Welcome to the Euro Intelligence podcast. I'm Wolfgang Muncher, and with me are Susanne Munschenk and Jack Smith. Today, we would like to talk about the EU migration deal. After many years, really many years, the EU has finally managed to get a deal done on migration. It's not a subject I understand very well, but Jack, you, you understand it better. Explain to us what the agreement contains
1: and is it, why it is so important. Um, yeah, so the first thing is that The agreement, it is a massive step forward from previously, but it is not totally, totally agreed. So what the member states have managed to agree on, uh, with the exception of Poland and Hungary, who voted against the agreement in the council, is basically a burden sharing mechanism. So after the 2015 migration crisis, this was the big topic of contention, because as many of our listeners will understand, you have a. A split between states that are relatively close to especially the Mediterranean and receive a lot of migrants and asylum seekers overland like Greece and Italy versus countries in Central and Eastern Europe, especially who are basically further away and didn't want to receive anybody. So the tension there was between, again, countries like Italy saying, well, we we basically have tons of people coming And while we're processing them, or once they've been granted refugee status and are being settled, we need them to kind of go somewhere else. And other countries saying, well, we don't want any reallocation because basically we don't really want to accept them. Um, That became a little bit more complicated too after the beginning of the Ukraine war, because Ukrainian refugees started coming into the EU, but the Ukrainian refugees came in under a different mechanism. So that also made things a little bit more complicated because Poland started complaining about having to kind of deal with burden sharing when they were also taking a ton of Ukrainian refugees. What member states, with the exception of Poland and Hungary, who voted against this, managed to agree on, was basically a, effectively a quota system where once you arrive within the European Union's borders and you're registered and you begin the processing stage, then you you almost get put into kind of a pool. And within that pool, there are quotas that different countries would take out. Now, this was kind of always the crux of any burden sharing approach, but Central and Eastern European member states principally, but not exclusively, had had argued against this. Now, what they've come up with is basically a compensatory mechanism where you say, okay, everybody gets their kind of allocated quota. And if you don't take as much as your quota, what you do is you pay into a common fund instead. And then uh, money from that fund gets reimbursed to countries that are above their kind of allocation quota. So if you wanted to say it very simply, it's, it's cash for migrants. For countries like Italy, this is probably not the ideal outcome. It, it's obviously acceptable because Italy supported the agreement in the end. That was something that Italy was happy with. Now, what they were not so happy with, which is what has been the part of the agreement that they're still working on, is repatriation to third countries. So this is about what happens if you are if you apply for asylum in the EU and your claim is for some reason rejected. Um, so repatriation then is kind of, well, where can you be sent back to? Um, Italy wanted a broader list of kind of so called third countries that you could be sent back to. Um, whereas Germany was not keen on the idea of sending people back anywhere except for somewhere that they had links to. So, for instance, a country that you previously lived in or a country where you had family. You know, repatriation, obviously, it's, it, it can be quite a sensitive so issue. So is this the, is this the R- Rwanda? Uh, yeah, this is the kind of Rwanda sort of thing, right? So, for instance, uh, as far as Germany was concerned, anything like what the UK has been trying to do with Rwanda would be, like, unacceptable. Part of this is considerations over what constitutes a safe country or not, Depending on who you are, Rwanda, a country like Rwanda might not be such a safe country for you to be in. And part of this is just concerns about kind of where, where, where should, where should we be putting people, right? So they've agreed to basically defer that part. But even so, moving forward on the burden sharing aspect of the plan is a big step. I think really this was the contentious part of the, entire debate over asylum and migration policy within the eu since it's going for 10 years yeah especially. yeah for, for for about 10 years really since the 2015 kind of refugee mm-hmm. crisis it's definitely going to I, I mean firstly if you're you know kiriakos Mitsotakis or georgia maloney this is a pretty significant step forward politically speaking mm-hmm. for you it's it's very good for them um i think as well another implication of this specifically looking at Italy is that it will create maybe a bit more distance between Miloni and right-wing leaders in Central and Eastern Europe that were formerly kind of her allies. It will move her a little bit more towards effectively the center-right at the European level, which was a process that was already beginning, but will kind of continue on from here as a result. Is this the end of the, the debate or is the, are we going to
0: see more of this at EU level? I mean, there wasn't sort of a completely final agreement, was it?
2: No, there was not a complete final agreement, Repatriation basically the people when they arrive on the, on, on, on the borders they they actually they, there will be a distinction between those who can apply for asylum and those who have to immediately will be sent after 12 weeks back um, so at that point, um, is it going to be, like Jack said, a, a safe country where they've been before? The transit country, like the Turkish model, the Turkey Pact, we had a pact with Turkey, that was the same thing. Or another country, so Italy is in negotiation with Tunisia at the moment. There again, they want to pay t- cash for, for Tunisia to take you know, take the migrants. And Denmark is also in negotiation with Rwanda. The Germans insisted human rights and considerations have to be acknowledged. So wherever the person has a link to, that has to be acknowledged. Italians don't want this conditionality. They couldn't agree on that. So the text, as it was allows member states not to apply the conditionality. And the idea is that they're going to come back to this conditionality in a year's time. So I think the reason why the Italians agreed in the end was because Olaf Scholz was in Italy and he was shaking hands with Giorgio Meloni um, talking about European solidarity. And
0: You think this might have been a factor in
2: Germany ultimate- and Italy ultimately? getting... I think so. At least at least, um, and there was a strong show of solidarity uh, towards uh, Italy, because also the other question is uh, they have to now build these um, centers, these uh, reception centers, uh, 30,000 new reception centers, and there too, probably there will be some money flow, um, uh, flowing towards Italy and Greece uh, probably, and, and, and that's uh, that will help them as well. So it is a political thing, and uh, like you said, it's like taking them away a little bit from Eastern Europe. Uh, Jack, probably that was also behind all of it's this kind of show of solidarity, a strong show of solidarity on a day like that.
0: I've seen quite a lot of EU deals, and often when there's a disagreement, there's a fudge in the end, something like something would be postponed until the next time. Oh, Sometimes. yeah,
1: I mean, the, the fudge in this case is bracketing the bit about repatriation. The, the one, the really important thing.
0: Huh? So I mean, that's a big, that's a really big issue. It's not the only big issue, but it's the big issue. It's a big issue for everybody. And so is, the, is this just a, a conflict postponed, like the you know sort of papering over the cracks, or is this a genuine progress and that will ultimately ultimately actually have some teeth in the end. I mean we have seen in EU history both examples of both where a decision was reached partially and then later fully and then where it was reached partially but it was just a, a superficial kicking the ball down the uh, down
2: the road exercise. I think for that you will have to look at the Germans. I think the German government is key here now because the greens for the greens is unacceptable to go and to violate um, human mm. rights and um, the idea of uh, sending people to a country that where they have no links is something that goes against the international conventions on migrant yeah. migrants. And but then again, you could go back to the Turkish deal and say, well, what about Turkey? That was how safe do you consider Turkey to be? And yet the Germans accepted the deal with Turkey at that time.
0: Yeah, we called it a pact with the devil when when yeah. when, when they when they did this, and it seems to have now become a blueprint.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it has. Although I mean, the, the Turkey the Turkey deal was slightly different because you were trying to kind of settle people in Turkey before they got to the EU in the first place, right? But the question of
2: whether or not it's a safe country. the question
1: question of whether or not it's a safe country. Yeah, that's a completely other one. I mean, yeah, I think in terms of bracketing repatriation, I, I still do think it's an important step forward because the burden sharing was the really big hang up at the beginning. Repatriation is difficult not just because there are disputes within the EU about it, but just because in general it's a really difficult issue. I think there's a tension between what is desirable politically and what you can do from a legal and humanitarian standpoint too. It's been the same with with the UK trying to say, okay, we consider people to be kind of basically illegal immigrants by default if they arrive here illegally and or regularly and try to claim asylum here. But then the problem that the UK will end up running into is, well, you still have a set of legal obligations surrounding where you can and cannot send people back. It's not, it is a political decision. in as much as you could repudiate large sections of international law if you really wanted, but you would be repudiating large sections of international law. I, I mean, within the EU, say you would have, obviously, everybody signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights. So you'd have the EC, you know, you'd have the court in Strasbourg weighing, on, weighing in on this and stuff like that too. I think with repatriation, it, it's a little bit different because it's not just about EU countries not being able to see eye to eye on this. It's also about it just inherently being a really, really difficult issue.
2: The question will be how this new key uh, amongst the member states also will work. Uh, uh, I mean, we only have five handful of actually member states who said they're willing to take in... um, Which countries? saw that? I know that Germany wanted to take in more than the quota I said uh, I don't know the other
1: ones but G- Germany was the largest of the ones so
2: there was only a handful of those and um, I mean if you have that does it mean that everyone else is paying the money or I mean it's still 30,000 we're talking about I mean in terms of Germany it would be nothing compared to uh, the 250,000 that actually applied for asylum yeah, I mean this, this, uh, this amount of money is
0: this I mean you know it sounds like a lot of money per person and yeah, but is this actually a lot of money in terms of what would governments uh, are in governments kind of indifferent between getting the money and keeping the refugees, or is this is this more like a a, a symbolic
2: a symbolic payment? I mean, twenty thousand per migrant you have to pay.
1: Oh, on a on a per person basis, it's quite yeah. a lot of money, right? When you add it up based on the on, on the quota amount, I'm I'm not necessarily sure it's that big. But at, at the very least, a lot of this is kind of about what you can kind of go away and sell politically as well as what is actually going to be, Mm -hmm. you know, economically consequential. I think in immigration of all areas, the gap between perceptions and reality is perhaps the, the biggest. So a, a lot of this, frankly, is perception management.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Uh, will this deal reduce immigration or contribute to it, or will, will this not have not actually any effect on, on
2: the total levels at all? That's the whole point of the deal. They wanted to actually uh, deter people from coming. And that's why you have this new first arrival uh, procedure where you actually don't even get as far as the asylum application. So, so they actually, after 12 weeks, they can actually send you back without anything. So that's the first bumper where if you are a migrant, you have to think really hard whether or not you have the chance to even get to the asylum stage. And in that sense, they hope to reduce the number of people coming to Europe. Uh, on the other hand, if that whole thing doesn't work, uh, repatriation and uh, everything else, from my understanding is they make it even worse because uh, what they signal is that, that they're not hospitable. And on the other hand, they are incapable of actually implementing these agreements, the strong measures, therefore attracting more of um, migrants who said, Well, um, they're not implementing it anyway, so I, I take my chances and go. And then there would be in the worst of all worlds like the UK, where like everything, UK, yeah, where everything yeah. is you know, you have more migrants. You, you lose and the good not- migrants, yes. the ones who actually have, have felt um, welcomed in the country country, you lose that sense, and also, but you attract those who are sort of like uh, mm. ready to take a chance.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, on Reducing Migration... I'm personally very skeptical of all these deterrence arguments, right? I, I think just as we're now skeptical of economists believing that people have perfect access to information when they make decisions, it's probably also fair enough to be skeptical of this. It's worse, um, it's worse than perfect. Now. It's worse than it's worse <laughs> than perfect. It's um, it's it's like banging your shins around in the dark. So I think the only two things that ever really work, if you actually want to reduce numbers, is number one, doing whatever you can to ensure stable geopolitical conditions in origin countries and origin regions, and number two, cutting deals with transit countries. Like the EU has with Turkey, um, that's another reason for all this interest in Tunisia. This past week, uh, Georgia Maloney spent a lot of time in Tunisia, and she she wasn't the only one either. So uh, it was also it was also it was also von der Leyen. Everybody everybody is trying to be friends with Tunisia, which is actually sliding into a bit of a geopolitical crisis of its own at the moment.
2: That's the other question. I mean, we've saw, seen with Turkey what happened politically afterwards, and how uh, Masipchadze Erdogan instrumentalized the deal. Uh, against the Europeans. So you give them a, a, a powerful argument to use against you and, and to blackmail whenever they need something. Uh, so that's something we can learn, the lesson learned from the, what we've experienced with Turkey. If we were to go that, down that road and were to do more deals with other countries, what we to watch out for and how to make sure that we're not getting into a geopolitical political blackmailing cycle.
1: Also, I, d- I don't think that it's great for building relationships with other countries no. either. Uh, I think th- all the stuff with Turkey Everything else, it kind of helps send the message that we're we don't really want a genuine relationship with these countries and we have quite an instrumental attitude to them. It's like we, we take your gas and we give you our migrants and that's how the relationship works. Mm.
0: I mean, this deal could you know, you're right to say earlier on that this deal could face some opposition in Germany in the, mm. down, down the road. The Greens have, especially the young Greens, uh, they have raised issues and I mean, they have a lot of issues at the moment. The Nuclear thing is over now, but there's an awful lot of headwind against Green policy. We just Discussed it in, in greater depth last week, but migration is a big issue for young Greens, for the young, for the young movement and the Green Party. And where the government, where the representatives in the government are more pragmatic, Bo- Robert Habeck and Annalena Baerbock are not fundamentally making a big issue out of this, as or as big an issue as they could. But the, the opposition comes from further sort of down down the ranks. It does constrain them in the future. So this this is something where you know we, we wrote about the, the difficulty of the German government. Over a number of issues. This is a, a country that has a the government. is I would say in crisis, in a sort of a state of perma crisis. That's why the word crisis perhaps not right, but sort of a state of perma confrontation between the between the coalition partners. It's not a happy and, and also not a very effective coalition. Right now, and this is another issue that could that could cause problems later on, and that's something the certainly the, the SPD would not want this to become an issue over a division with the Greens. So it's a, so there are big big issues to be to be raised between their allegiances to the EU and to their own domestic scene, and their own domestic scene is, is quite sort of insurrectional on this point.
1: Mm-hmm. Obviously, an issue if, if you look at the uh, what's happening with the RFD's polling figures.
0: Yeah, I mean the AfD has gone up to 19 um, uh, in two polls now. Mm-hmm. So this has been sort of steady rise. Almost every week it's gone up.
1: I know every week I see new numbers, and yeah, it's yeah, like I it's mean, some, um you know, I, we don't look at it
0: when there are polls that kind of that that kind of overregister movements. I like to go with the conservative ones, the guys that are the slow ones, the ones that are kind of out of date, because what one of the things that they do is they there's an awful lot of noise in the in German polling. You saw this in you know ahead of the last election. So it's 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 better to not to register the latest move which is often a result of newspaper headlines so you, you have this sort of doom loop between uh, newspaper headlines a poll which is often commissioned by the same newspaper uh, in order to validate its own stories basically and then sort of it, this doom loop runs for a while and then it sort of ends and then you know the numbers settle down to a lower level so one has to kind of cut out that
1: but, but there is a more headline. consistent rise yeah, they, of the they, they, they Like is, it, it's kind all, of hard to all, deny it this that's point.
0: right all of the all of the agencies have re- uh, registered that 17-18% that would be a, a number that, that I think is is correct. And when they're over 20%, then it becomes extremely difficult for coalition building in Germany. And there are other complicating factors like, you know, the change in the electoral law, there's an potential constitutional court challenge over this, the future of the left party. So there are a number of factors that play in, but the rise in the AFD, there's another possibility that another left party is formed later this year. So there are a number of factors that are still sort of open, but the rise of these extremist parties, once they are over 20% together, which they weren't last time. The left party and the AFD together are 23%. If they both come in at it's, this level... It's conceivable that the AFD
1: could be over 20% by themselves. It is It is quite
0: conceivable. And then it doesn't matter whether the left party is at 3 or 4%. It just, it just makes it difficult for any non-grand coalition to form. Yeah. And then you're back to grand coalition, so it's basically the centre versus the rest, which is the ultimate nightmare because that's that just strengthens the extremes because the centre has to... There's no...
1: There's no good government coming out of this. It's just centrist fudge, which we've had under Merkel. Also, also, I think you know what you tend to find as well in other European countries is that once these far right parties get to this sort of level, even if they suffer temporary setbacks, they don't tend to completely go away. Like they get a, they gain a certain amount of staying power once they get to this point. It's been that case with the Sweden Democrats in Sweden. It, it's kind of been that case with the, um, with the PVV in the Netherlands, where they've been kind of down, but not out at various different points. You know, Herr Wilders is still around the FPÖ They obviously suffered a pretty bad knock to their popularity after the gate in Austria. But they're now back, and there's a pretty decent chance that the FPO will actually be leading the next Austrian government. Yes. So, uh, I mean, the exception would be the uh, would would be the kind of Danske Folk Party in Denmark, but that was because the uh, Social Democrats basically kind of became the Danske Folk Party. So, you know, immigration is for
2: the far right, of course, a central subject, and we can see now we had this event yesterday in, in France, uh, where and as. But well, we don't know yet exactly what status this person had, but a person was uh, attacking with a knife, two adults and four children, very young children in a public park. It could be happening anywhere and seriously injuring them. It is, we still, the whole country is still under shock. We saw some politicians coming out there already. We had Nicolas Sarkozy, Elizabeth Bourne, uh, Marine Le Pen, of course, went there. And you had uh, the outpourings of Eric in already screaming already about uh, how bad the immigration is and how linking it uh, to a bigger subject, of, even though we don't actually know the status of um, who this, person them, is. who this person is. Um, so uh, without even knowing that uh, the screaming is loud, whatever the outcome will be, it will tap into anxiety of um, families this time. I mean, if you think about the parents, all those parents who went to playgrounds, not thinking about it, what will that be for them now going on forward? Now, whenever someone who looks like coming from Syria, you might all of a sudden have more paranoia around these kind of playgrounds. I remember when I was pregnant and we had Maddie disappearing and all of a sudden you you tap into this emotional sadness and fear of loss. And I think that that uh, could well be um, a trampoline for the far right in, in France but develop forever uh, if they not overblow it. And for the left, they have to find a way of how, how to actually ground that debate and making sense of the facts and bring it back to the facts and trying to reason with it. But with that kind of shocking uh, incident, it will be very hard to ground it.
1: Yeah, and I, I would say, having having just come from France over here to the UK, a couple of things about Annecy as well. Um, the first was that it's especially shocking because you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's not a very big place. It's, it's in the Alps, kind of close to Geneva, and it's definitely, you know, what you would hear from a lot of people afterward, kind of eyewitnesses or people in the town who are interviewed afterwards as well, we'd expect this somewhere like Paris or Marseille, but we wouldn't expect this here so I think it had an especially shocking impact because it happened in what is quite an idyllic and picturesque little town and it didn't happen in a big city. The second thing is I think it's still definitely too early to tell what the political impact is going to be because aside from people like Zemmour, you have to you have to be kind of careful with taking them too seriously with other people in the kind of in in that space it's still very much the reaction is shock. It's horror at what's happened. And the more serious people on the far right I don't think they're really trying to make terribly much political capital out of oh, it. Were.
2: and seen rather than actually staying away and just leaving that, is Elizabeth Bourne, was there? Nicole Marine Le Pen and uh, Laurent Wauquiez went online and uh, to basically talk about themselves and their their how they see it. Uh, and I think it's a bit early. I mean, ideally, you would actually not comment on it until you know it. That would have been much better.
1: Yeah, I think I think some of this stuff reflects as well not just self promotion, but more the, the the dictates of the contemporary news cycle. Where Where um, uh, if you don't say something about these things, people are going to start asking why, you know, they'll start asking why you haven't said anything about this, right?
2: They could have just said, well, let's, let's establish facts first. And that's something uh, at least, I mean, they didn't go as far as Eric Zemmour, well, that's for
1: sure. No, no, I mean, I think the point I was trying to make is that they did not go as far as yeah. Eric Zemmour, right? Yeah. That there was a level of presumptuousness in his response that was yeah. that was not there with the others. And so I think that's still very much the place that it is. But yeah, upon hearing about it, it is a, it is a thought that I had, how is this going to change the tenor of the debate, um, especially since immigration? Um, because of the kind of french because of Emmanuel Macron's government and the immigration bill that's coming up mm-hmm. that is going to be now just an increasingly contentious and liberal
2: the republican have their own kind of uh, immigration agenda um, they can, their old kind of proposal that they want to put forward it's going to change that as well right
0: on this note i think we we kind of wrap this up for for this week
1: especially on this cheery note on this yeah. cheery note yeah.
0: thank you for listening until next week